Well, hey, everybody. Happy New Year. Hope your uh, year is off to a good start. The Georgia Bulldogs eked out a win last night. So, you know, that's a good thing. I said that for you, Drew, right there. And my son-in-law basically grew up with a Georgia Bulldogs pacifier in his mouth, you know, as a baby. And uh, has been, he, he literally flies a Bulldogs flag in front of his uh, house uh, year-round. Uh, in honor of them. So anyway, uh, yeah, excited for that. Excited to see y'all here. Um, uh, I didn't expect to be here actually with you. I uh, got an interesting call Thursday, uh, Wednesday night late, and that was Steve Allen was supposed to be bringing the messages this weekend. Unfortunately, if you haven't heard, Steve's son has been in the hospital. Um, he's dealing with some blood clot issues. They've been doing some different procedures for him, and uh, it's, you know, it's been going on for about a week. And so uh, Jacob's doing okay. If you know Jake, you know uh, he's doing okay, but uh, he still has some procedures ahead uh, to try to, you know, resolve this issue. And so just be praying for Jacob, be praying for the Allen family, Steve, as he tries to support and take care of his family and uh, and everybody who's just, you know, plain worried about Jake. So uh, keep them in your mind, in your heart. But anyway, Steve gave me a call Wednesday night in the midst of all this and said, I don't think I'm... I'm up to preaching this weekend while trying to deal with all this. And I said, no problem. Let me, let me jump in. Uh, hey, it's just the next day. So, you know, no problem. We'll figure this out. Uh, Steve's a phenomenal preacher, but when he sends you his notes, it's like 12 words on a page. That's about it. And uh, it all's in his head. And I, uh, you know, like, great. That's awesome. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> no. But uh, anyway, um, while I would have loved to have had a little bit of a head start on this, I can tell you this, uh, I can be more excited about this message today. We're kicking off this new series, A Healthy You, and uh, in this, uh, for this whole month, we're going to talk about some really four key areas where all of us need to, really our entire lives, focus on becoming more and more and more healthy and, uh, and focused, and, and to do that in a, in a Christ-honoring and godly way to you know, how can we become emotionally more healthy, mentally healthy, physically healthy, and then what we're going to be talking about today, which is spiritually healthy. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, and I think that some of you in the room are going to sympathize with me on this. I hate getting healthy. Uh, man, there's nothing fun about this. And you health nuts out there, there's something wrong with you, okay? I'm just saying. Uh, you know, it takes hard work, it's such a pain, it takes discipline, you don't get to do whatever you want, you know, the list goes on and on, and uh, it really applies not just to physical health, but it's all the different types of health I just listed. It's just, it's hard work, and it's tough, and it'd be much easier just to go through life on our own, but here's the problem. While all of those things fit into that category of it's hard to do, they also fit into the category is that it's really, really good for me. Uh, it's worth the work, it's worth the effort, and I know that when I get healthy in any of those categories, it almost always changes me or changes my life for the better. So we're going to jump into this series today, and we're going to actually be talking about the, what is the, really the foundational area of health that really feeds all the other areas, and you're going to see that unfold during this month, but that is to get spiritually healthy, to get right. I mean, that's the right place that, uh, the, that we start. And, um, and so, you know, the question then comes to mind, all right, if I'm going to be spiritually healthy, what exactly does spiritual health mean? I mean, how do you actually, you know, define that? There's, there's all different kinds of uh, ways to measure health, the health that we talked about, right? Physical health is pretty easy, right? How strong am I? How much endurance do I have? Maybe looking at the numbers on the scale, 
get those things right, I feel like I'm physically healthy. I've reached my physical goals. Mental and emotional health, even those categories, they have trained professionals. There's college degrees in those areas and people that can help you go through a process and evaluate you and, and take you through a process of getting emotionally or mentally healthy. And so that one's, you know, maybe a little more challenging, but still, we can get our arms around that. But when it comes to spiritual health, what exactly does that mean? What exactly do you measure? Well, the Bible makes that perfectly clear. And that is that the standard of spiritual health is measured against one thing and one thing only, and that is Jesus Christ. In other words, how much am I like Jesus? How's my relationship with Jesus? How, how connected am I to Jesus? Because the simple truth is, the more I am like Jesus, the more spiritually healthy I am. I mean, it really is that Simple. Now, that's infinitely difficult, but it's really that simple at the same time. Now, the process of becoming spiritual, uh, spiritually healthy, the Bible calls that actually discipleship. Now, we often get this wrong. We get this little backwards that we tend to think, I've got to get spiritually healthy, and then I'll get serious about discipleship. You know, I got I to get some spiritual health markers, and then I can start to really dive into a, a study or, or get mentored by somebody or, you know, really focus on discipleship in my life. But that's not the way the Bible lays it out. So you don't get spiritually healthy to become a disciple. You become a disciple in order to become spiritually healthy. Now, we have a really simple definition around, uh, here, around here about what discipleship is, and it comes right from Jesus' call to the original 12 disciples, right? We figure if that's what he called them to, then we should learn from that as well because we're called to the same thing. We find this in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 19. <clears throat> Excuse me. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Here it is. Here's his call. The one that we use in our definition around here. Come follow me. Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, that simple call, if we truly understand it, kind of three main areas that we're going to talk about today, that simple call leads us towards spiritual health. Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, the first part of this invitation is pretty simple. Come follow me. We all get that, right? Uh, it's making that first-time decision to accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. You know, we realize if we're going to... If we're going to get started, if we're going to, you know, get on a journey with Jesus, we're going to have to first accept him. But it's also more than that because it's, well, sometimes we think of, oh, I've accepted Christ, therefore I've won the game, right? I've crossed the finish line. I've thought about this. I've gone to church. I've read my Bible. I finally got to the point where I've decided to accept Christ and get baptized. And we throw our arms up in the air and we cross the finish line and we go, whoo, I'm a Christian now. It's all good. And we think we've reached the end where in reality, the Bible says that's actually just the beginning, right? That's the point at which we start. Uh, we put ourselves on the starting line and just take our first step across. If, it, if you want to use a game analogy, it's just putting your piece on the board, maybe taking the first roll. You know, it's not winning the game. It's not finishing the game or, the, or even the race that we're in. Instead, it's just the beginning. Now, after we go through that beginning, after that starting... Then we begin the process of what does it look like to follow Jesus every day? What does it look like to walk with him and to really get to know him and build a relationship with him? And while most, people, most of us understand that part, there's also something that we tend to miss in the invitation. Matter of fact, we see it right in this passage of scripture uh, as we continue to read on. Uh, and that is that Jesus invites us to come to him. Come follow me. 
And that means we need to start doing some new things, but it also means he's inviting us to leave some things behind as well. Look at what he does with the disciples. Matthew chapter 4 again, continuing on where we left off. At once they left their nets and followed him. Do you catch that? Come follow me. I'm going to leave what I'm doing here now to follow you. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them as well. And immediately, here it is again, they left their boat. And they left their father and followed Jesus. See, Jesus was inviting them to come, but he was inviting them to more than that. He was also inviting them to leave. Now, in their case... He was challenging them, inviting them to leave their their boat and their nets. Those are the things that had the most tangible value in their lives. Leave their jobs. That was their way of their life. They were fishermen, after all. That defined who they were. Leave that behind, Jesus was saying, and said, come follow me. Even leave behind a member of your family to follow me. Now, most of us aren't going to be challenged with that level of leaving. You know, called on the mission field or something where we have to leave everything behind, all that we have, and, uh, and head out to follow Jesus. But if we're going to come and follow Jesus, then all of us are going to have to leave some things behind. And for each one of us, that's going to be different. I can't give you a list. It's, it's your own personal list. God's going to work with you on whatever that is. But understand this, it was because the disciples were willing to leave those things behind and only because, that they were will, because they were willing to do that, that their lives actually changed. Otherwise, they would have just stayed fishermen. Maybe fishermen who believe in Jesus, but their lives would have been relatively the same. But instead, they radically changed forever because they were willing to leave some things behind. Now, the truth is, no matter who you are, doesn't matter whether you're a brand new Christian, whether you've been a Christian for 40 years, you've got some stuff to leave behind. We all do. Even as we grow in Christ, we find new things to take on and other things that we've now got to leave behind and to continue to move forward. I mean, maybe it's your job or your career or ambitions that you have in life. I know that was a big one for me. See, I became a Christian a little later in life, about about the middle of high school is when I really discovered what it meant to have a relationship with Jesus. But I had a plan for my life, even in high school. My dad and I, we were super close. Uh, Best friends. My dad was the best man in my wedding. And so we were just really tight. My dad owned his own company. I had a plan. I was going to go into business with my dad. I always thought that way. That was my plan. I went down to the University of Arizona uh, when I went to college to study and studied business. That was, my, that was my whole plan. The only problem was that when I became a Christian, I began to sense that God was calling me to be a pastor. But it wasn't my plan. <laughs> that wasn't my agenda. That wasn't my ambition. That wasn't, you know, what I had laid out for me. God was calling me to something new. He needed me to leave that ambition, that plan, that design for my life that I had come up with. He needed me to leave that behind so that he could lead me to where he wanted me to go. And that wasn't easy. It took me literally years to work that out. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't do a great job of doing it. Now, that may not be it for you. Maybe not be, it may not be that category. Maybe it's a, it's a relationship that you have, and you've got to deal with that relationship. Maybe it's unhealthy or it's distracting, whatever that's holding you back. Maybe you've got a difficult past that you need to deal with or some wrong ideas that maybe you learned about life or about God or whatever that need to be reset. Maybe you just need to plain old let them go. Whatever it is that might hold you back, that's the thing that God is inviting you to leave. Whatever is going to keep you from moving forward. I told you I went down to the University of Arizona uh, when I first went to college, 
uh, to study business, and I stayed in the dorms there my freshman year. Uh, now, there was a, uh, felt like a nightly ritual, and I never quite understood this because it's like, guys, really? I, I don't get it. But, man, it was exciting to pull the fire alarm, right? I, I don't know. I never, you know, the guys just, it happened all the time. And, you know, the first couple of times you're like, oh, there's a fire. you got to hustle outside. Well, after about the 5,200th time, you know, you're like, oh, fire alarm again. And you're just kind of dragging yourself out front. You had to go outside. They made you all get out of the building so they could check things, and then they'd let you back in. Right? That was the regular routine. Wasn't fun, but somebody was apparently having a good time. And so we would trudge outside very slowly. And still, we would assemble outside waiting for the off clear. And there was always this one guy. As slow as we got outside, there was this one guy, and he would always come out last. I don't know what he was doing, but he always came out carrying a metal box. And he didn't carry it like a briefcase, you know, it was like this square box, and he carried it like this, kind of clutching it. He'd come walking out, you know, the building. I never knew the guy, never, you know, met him outside of seeing him walk out the building clutching his metal box. But what was in that box was a matter of much speculation, right, amongst all the rest of us uh, that were standing out there. What in the world? First of all, it took took him so long to carry it outside. And second, that was so important that made him dead last. Because if there was a real fire, this guy was not making it out, right? Right? I mean, he took way too long to get his box out of the building. Now, here's my question for you. What's in your box? We've all got a metal box. We're all carrying it around. We're clutching it pretty tight. We've got stuff in there that we don't want to let go. And that's the really interesting thing is that when God asks us to, to get things out of our box, it's usually really hard because the first thing that God usually asks us to take out of our box is the last thing we want to give up. We want to hold tight to those things. They're hard, but folks, we've got to do the hard work. We've got to change the habit. Go to Celebrate Recovery on Monday night if that's going to help. Uh, have somebody hold you accountable. See a trained counselor, but empty out the box. Get the stuff out of your box because God's got new things he wants to put in there. But he can't do that until you make some room to make some space. you got to get those things behind you because they're weighing you down, they're slowing you down, and they're keeping you from experiencing all that God has. And we're never going to become all that God desires for us to be until we can leave some things behind. Now, that's where Jesus starts with us. Come follow me and, and leave some things behind. But that's not the end of his invitation. He continues on to say that I'm going to make you. I'm going to come follow me and I will make you. Jesus is literally inviting us to come and to be remade by him. Paul writes it this way in Colossians chapter 2 verses 6 to 7. And now just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Now let your roots grow down into him. Let your lives be built on him, and then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Man, I love this. I love this invitation that we're given to be remade. We're not only invited, but commanded to be remade into the image of Christ. It's what we call Christ-likeness, and Jesus calls us literally to live like he lived, live like me. He's called the author and perfecter of our faith for a reason. He's literally the model of how we can live out this life. And as we follow that model, we become more and more like Christ. And I think the first step, if we're going to deal with this, and I know this is an issue 
you know, early on in my faith especially, was an issue for me is, is kind of understanding Christianity for what it really is. See, a lot of people just aren't that excited. They're Christians and they believe, but they aren't that excited about being a Christian. You know, especially for us guys, sometimes it can be frustrating because there's this stereotype that Christians are, and Christianity is weak. Folks, Christianity is anything but weak. It is not about weakness. It's about taking on the armor of God. As we go into spiritual battle, it's about running the race to win the prize. Do you understand that when Paul talks about that race, we, talk, we reference that all the time in Scripture. Do you understand what Paul says? He doesn't say participate. You need at least, you know, join, join in the race a little, run a little, give it your best effort, give it a go, get a participation trophy. You know, that's not what Paul says. Paul says, no, no, no. Get in the race. And then he says, buffet your body. That's the Greek way of saying train yourself. Train yourself to do what, he says? To win the race. God's not looking for participants. He's looking for people that are going to go after it and work hard at it and strive after it and win that race, folks. That's not weakness. Weakness is the person who says, hey, I'm, just, I'm here just to finish. No, no. He wants you to be the winner, the one that crosses the finish line first, that goes after it with all of your might, with all of your heart. It's about living the kind of life, frankly, that few people actually will choose. Not because they're not capable, but because they're not strong enough. Christianity is looking for people with strength and courage and fortitude and discipline who's willing to go after this in such a way that they win the race. Now, folks, Jesus is not this soft, passive man that artwork and movies have led you to believe. No, no, no. Jesus absolutely lived a life of power. I see no weakness in Jesus as he fasted for 40 days and, and 40 nights and then went head to head with Satan out in the wilderness. He, a Jesus who challenged the establishment of his day and chased money changers out of the temple, raised Lazarus from the dead and led a massive cultural revolution that has impacted the world more than anybody who's ever lived. That's the Jesus that we're called to be like. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but power and love and self-discipline. Folks, it's time for us to stop walking around in intimidation and fear. We need to walk with confidence. Confidence in an all-powerful God, knowing that he has given us the power to live out a Christian life, knowing that he has given us the power to tell others about Jesus. And then we need to look at Matthew chapter 28 and actually go, do, you know, do you actually believe what that talks about? In that chapter, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me and I'm passing that authority on to you. And oh, by the way, my presence and my power is going to be with you always. Do you actually believe that? Because if you do, it should radically change your life. That when you pray for the needs and, and the hurts and the, you know, the, you know, the, the, sick, the uh, people who are sick and ill and praying for Jacob Allen, you know, when you pray for those things, you should expect that those prayers are going to be answered because God and his power is on your side. When you tell others about Jesus, you should expect that they're going to get saved. You should have faith in God and believe in the depths of your soul that God has a plan for you and that you actually have a role and a purpose in building his kingdom here on earth. Folks, we need to live in the power that Christ has given us in this church. But understand this, that if we live with that power, 
We've also got to live with something else that we see as a companion to it. And Jesus lived out both with equal passion and fortitude. See, Jesus lived a life of power, but he also lived a life of humility. He did that mainly by becoming a servant in this world. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. And if you miss this, you're going to get some really important things wrong. If you miss Jesus washing the filthy disciples' feet and feeding the 5,000 at the end of a long day when I'm sure that he was exhausted, if you, you miss the fact that Jesus would take time to bless little children and stop in the midst of a large crowd to take care of the needs of the one individual who, who really needed him in that moment, if you miss all those things, then you actually become more like a Pharisee than you do like Jesus. Because you end up with power, and you understand the power that you have, but you use it more to control and to manipulate and to, to you know, for personal gain. I'm going to use my faith so that I can pray to God to get stuff in my life, right? Or I can use that same power to give and to serve and to bless others. But we also don't want to do the opposite. We don't want to just have the servant mind and humility without that understanding of power because then, yeah, we can serve and we can help out a little bit, but we actually lack the power then to truly make a difference and change the world around us. Now, that's not where his discipleship ends. There's so much more there than we even have time to talk about today, but he's going to continue on in this last, uh, last phase of the call, if you will. Come follow me and I will make you. And he concludes by saying that we can become fishers of men. Now, what is that? That's Jesus' mission. That's the mission that he was on. That's why he came here to earth. It's awesome. We are invited to, go, to get on mission with Jesus. See, the more we become like Jesus, the more we get connected with Jesus, the more we deepen our relationship with Jesus, then the more we want to be and are able to be on mission with Jesus. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 15 verse 5. Yes, I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them, catch this, will. Not might, not may, not could, not on a long shot, you know, on a good day, you will produce how much fruit? Much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Our connection to Jesus not only can, but should and will produce fruit not only in our lives, not just for our benefit, but through our lives to bless others and carry out the mission of Jesus. And one of the main ways that we see Jesus doing this when he was here on earth is, is through compassion and this deep compassion that Jesus had for all people. Uh, right after these other verses that we read, the call to the disciples followed by uh, the things that the disciples were leaving behind in order to follow that call, the very next verse we see Jesus heading out with those men and this is what he does. Jesus traveled through the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed, or epileptic, or paralyzed, he healed them all. Folks, what is that? That is total compassion 
in every possible category. In other words, Jesus was caring about people physically, taking care of their illnesses, those types of things. But he was also caring about them mentally. He was caring about them emotionally. He was caring about them spiritually. Literally, Jesus started the first Healthy You campus, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about. These are four core areas. These are the things that Jesus was doing for the people as he went out and ministered to them. But compassion is often just misunderstood. It's misunderstood as an emotion because in, in English, and when we talk about having compassion, we think of it just as, I felt, very, I felt compassion. But that's not the way it's understood in the Bible. It's more than an emotion. See, if it's, if it's just an emotion, if it's just something we feel, then it's actually more like sympathy or empathy for somebody else rather than compassion. Real compassion involves a desire to help, a feeling for sure, but it also must contain the action that actually helps somebody. So you feel for their need. You feel for the situation they're in, but you're also acting to help minister to them and to contribute to that and to help them through whatever they're going. See, compassion is not actually a feeling. It's an action. And pure compassion, when it's done the way that Jesus did it, well, it's done in an unconditional way. I mean, think about this. If compassion is an action, and what is the greatest act of compassion that has ever happened in history? It's when Christ, yeah, the cross, absolutely. Christ saw our need. He felt compassion upon us. The fact that we were stuck in our sins, we were separated from God, and so he acted on our behalf. And he went to the cross to take on the punishment for our sins, and he hung on the cross, and those sins were taken away. The greatest act of compassion in all of history. But did we deserve it? Absolutely not. While we were yet in our sins, Scripture tells us, while we were still sinners, Christ went to the cross. And just like Christ did for us, we're called to show that same kind of compassion to others, not because somebody deserves it, but simply because they need it. Now, we live in, a, in an age where there's a lot of apathy towards um, the needs of others and helping others. I mean, it's, it's really too easy just to turn a blind eye to those who are in need. And I, and I think that it's just because we live in a pretty fast Pace society. You know, too many places to go, too many people to see, too many worlds to conquer, you know, all those kind of things. Uh, we just get caught up in the fast pace of life. But if we're going to really have the heart of Jesus, if we're going to live like Jesus lived, um, we need to follow his examples. Well, we see it right in scripture that he took the time to slow down, took the time to slow down and to look around. I guarantee you there are hundreds of opportunities to show compassion around you every day. I mean, sometimes it's big opportunities. You know, this year we're going to be sending out some short-term mission trips. We haven't been able to do that for a few years because of COVID and all that stuff. We're going to reinitiate some short-term mission trips this year. Maybe God's calling you to do that and to be compassionate towards people in different parts of the world in that way. Maybe he's just calling you not to go around the world, but just down, down the street a little. Go to Union Gospel Mission and volunteer there and help out there. You know, we, there's some folks that we support and we encourage people to serve there. We've got other organizations like that. Maybe you just sign up to serve regularly here at uh, VRL, you know, one of our campuses here at the Barker campus, out of Riverside, on the online campus, you know, serve regularly. And that's a way to show compassion to the people that are right here in this congregation or that are coming here as guests for the first time. But there's also lots of small acts that we can do. You know, little things. You're driving down the road, you see somebody changing their tire. Do you ask them if they need anything? You know, roll down your window, get them a bottle of water, you know, whatever. 
Uh, help them out however you can. Just, you know, find an opportunity. You know, here's one that everybody sees. And we see it all the time, right? It's the mother or the father who's trying to get into some place. They got a diaper bag over one shoulder. They got a backpack over the other shoulder. They got a stroller in this hand. They're holding a pacifier between their teeth. And they got the one child on this leg. And they're trying to get through the door, you know. Things are falling on the floor. Do you stop? Do you help them? Do you give them a hand? Hold the door open for them. Pick up whatever just fell to the ground. Folks, those things are around us all the time. You know, this next one is one that's particularly challenging for me. Let the person behind you in line go first. You know, I don't want to do that. I got stuff to do. Well, let them go first. Maybe it'll help their day. Maybe it'll just make them appreciate a little bit of kindness. Stop and talk to your neighbor. See how they're doing. Grab your snow shovel or something to help chip away the ice while you're doing it. See, it's too easy to go the way of the world and to miss out on the needs of the people around us. Slow down. Look around. Live the life of compassion that Jesus did. And while you're doing that, make sure you live it with an eternal perspective. It's one of the key things we see. We're going to live like Christ that we're going to have to emulate and if we're going to be on mission with Christ, it's going to give us the, the, the reasons, the, the whys and, and the whens and the hows and all that become clear if we have that right focus. John chapter 17, verses 2 to 3 says, For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one, and, and you have given him, or that each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. See, Jesus taught eternal living. He planned the church for eternal living. He opened the door for eternal living, and it's right there in front of us, but we literally miss sometimes what should define our life. It should define our mission in this world. Larry Burkett wrote it this way, our failure to view our present lives through the lens of eternity is one of the biggest hindrances to seeing our lives in their true light. Yet scripture states, the reality of our eternal future should determine the character of our present life. Let me read that last phrase to you again. The reality of our eternal future should determine the character of our present life. Folks, we are eternal creations. Our bodies may die, but our spirit lives forever. And we can't miss this one because it does change everything. It brings the purpose and meaning that we're all looking for. And the life focused on Jesus is a life that's focused on eternity. And that's the only life that's ever going to bring fulfillment to us. Now, there's a story, a true story. Uh, it's going to sound like a Disney movie. And actually, there was a Disney movie that was based, or at least the idea from it came from this true story. I'm down in India. There was a little boy who was found on the outskirts of town. And when they found him, they, they, they knew immediately he just had been abused his whole life. He wasn't like a toddler. He was kind of in that elementary-aged type thing. But uh, he'd obviously been abused. Clearly, his, he, he couldn't walk upright. No, you know, he didn't walk upright. He just walked on all fours. His knees and his hands were all kind of calloused up and scarred up. And his body had lots of, he was naked. body had lots of scars all over it, especially up, up around his shoulders and neck area. And uh, his teeth were like, broken and cracked um, and uh, very malnourished. But, uh, uh, you know, this, this poor kid, they found him, and they didn't know what was going on. He couldn't speak. He had no language. He just made kind of guttural noises and hoops and hollers. And so uh, they didn't know 
what his story was. They couldn't ask him, obviously, but they took him in. They tried to, you know, take care of his physical needs and try to start incorporating him into, you know, society. Because uh, he really didn't want anything to do with people. He, he was scared to death of adults, was, could, was okay with other children. Um, but they started to incorporate him in some different ways. And one of the ways they did that was by taking him to a zoo one day. And so they took him to the zoo, and they were wandering around looking at the animals, and he was looking at them like everybody else. Uh, still fairly early, didn't have any language or whatever still, but um, they, you know, he was having a good time, I guess, and got to the pen where they kept the wolves. And all of a sudden, he got really excited. And he started making these guttural noises and hoops and hollers, and the wolves started to respond to him as if they were having a conversation back and forth. And when they combined that experience with other things they saw, how he ate his food, how he drank his water, you know, the fact that he only went on all fours and, and the scarring up around his neck as if he'd been carried around like a puppy, they realized that he literally had been raised by a pack of wolves. Now, it was no surprise that this is how he was, that he didn't speak, that he you know, had these guttural hoops and hollers. He acted just like a wolf because he had lived just like a wolf. And when we live like Jesus, then we'll begin to be like him and to act like him and to behave like him and to think like him. And it will become just instinctual on our part. That's what living, that's why God calls us to live like him. To live like the author and perfecter of faith, to become Christ-like. And that's why it produces spiritual health. Because the more we act like Jesus, the more we know him, the more we live like him, the more spiritually healthy we will become. Now, I understand that this is a lot. We talked about just a lot today. And honestly, there's, there's even more than we had time to, to cover today. I know it seems like a lot, too many steps, too many things to remember, too much to tackle, and, and the goal just seems too far away. So let me just give you a simple challenge. I don't know if you heard the old phrase, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Very good. Yeah, one bite at a time. So let me just give you a couple of bites. As you head off into spiritual health and, and thinking about that this, today and this week, let me just give you a couple of bites to think about. First of all, this, what, what do you need to get out of your box? What's God calling you to get out of your box? Because there's things that God wants to put into your life that are never going to get there until you get rid of that thing. And so what is, what is that? That's the first question. That's the first bite. And then the second, what, are, what is a healthy habit? What's a healthy habit that you can take on uh, that we see Jesus, you know, some of the things we talked about here, maybe it's just looking for small acts of compassion, whatever it is, what's a healthy habit that you want to take on? Because healthy habits, well, healthy habits produce healthy results. And it's continual healthy habits, spiritually healthy habits that are going to make us spiritually healthy. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus. God, I want to thank you that, that you didn't just choose to, to bring salvation to us from a distance, that you didn't just call down something from heaven. And, and sometimes it can be even hard to imagine, why would you send your son to go through all that? And, and I believe that what we're talking about today is one of the major reasons for that. God, because he's the author and perfecter of our faith, because we could, we could see how you're actually calling us to live and who you're calling us to live like, God, that he serves as that model for us, that model of uh, spirituality in general, 
but specifically spiritual health and God, what you desire for us. And so God, we pray that our lives might become more and more like his as we strive to be all that you've called us to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.